Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 10. Four. Sal had found Manchu when they both returned to their B&B after sunrise. Predictably, he had not been enthusiastic when Sal told him about her encounter with Opie and his offer. I don't like the idea of losing a chunk of my memory any more than you do, but I don't think we have a choice she said, trying to keep the impatience out of her voice. Sal couldn't imagine that getting snippy with Menchu would help matters, and it wasn't like any of this was his fault. We always have a choice, said Menchu, and we only have the word of one technocultist that this so-called index won't wipe your entire memory. We don't even know that it works at all. I'm pretty sure that mind-wiping someone would be considered both breaking a deal and offering violence against another member of the market. Do you really think they'd risk getting evicted? I'm sure their expulsion will be a great comfort to you after your mind has been destroyed by their infernal machine. That's the other thing. If this is all a ploy, what's in my mind that they're so interested in? Out of everyone here, why target me? Your brother. You know more about what's going on with Perry than I do. Plus more secrets of the society besides. Why haven't they been eye-fucking you this whole time? Manchu didn't even crack a smile. Because if they'd approached me, I would have said no, and we wouldn't be having this discussion. You think they targeted me because I'm the weak link. I think they know what you want, and now they're offering it to you. It's what demons do, find your weakness and turn it against you. You think Opie is a demon? Seriously? I think something is powering the Index, and it is in love and light. If possible, Manchu's expression turned even more serious. You haven't been with us for long, but even so, these people would be foolish to pass up the opportunity to suck you dry of every drop of information you know about the archives and the society. You remember how Liam was possessed? Sal nodded. This wouldn't be the first time technocultists tried to use the residue of a demon to access our secrets. And once they've touched you, demons leave scars, just like physical wounds. Break a bone once, you're more likely to break it again in the same place. So where are you broken? Sal asked. Manchu froze. What do you mean? 
He recruited me after I fought off a demon possessing my brother. Liam was taken over by something out of his computer, lost two years of his life, and now lives to fight the kinds of things that stole that time from him. I'm willing to bet that Asante had some brush with the arcane that got her so curious about magic. And for some reason, Grace isn't afraid of getting shot. So what happened to you? The silence sat heavily between them. Does it have to do with an angel? Manchu's head shot up. What did Asante tell you? Nothing. But you just did. Manchu seemed to deflate before her very eyes, shrinking somehow as though the clerical collar was just a costume, and he wasn't a crusader saving the world from magic, demons, and things that lurk in the night, but merely a middle-aged man who was suddenly very, very tired. Sal expected him to tell her that the discussion was over, or that his past was none of her business, or even to send her back to Rome. Instead, he said, it was a long time ago, when uh, I was still a parish priest in Guatemala. The parish consisted of a single village tucked into a valley surrounded by as much farmland as the residents could cultivate before the terrain became too steep to support anything but virgin forest. The United States had been telling the world that Guatemala was a democracy for at least 10 years, although what evidence it had to support that claim beyond a nominally elected government was dubious. Were mass executions and disappearances the hallmarks of a democracy? Manchu was pretty sure they weren't, and he was dead certain that they shouldn't be. Still, there were a few signs that things were changing for the better, and maybe that was why he had not seen the disaster coming. Unknowing, perhaps he had let his guard down. Whatever the reason, the first Manchu knew of the impending disaster was a small fist banging on the door of his residence in the middle of the night. Manchu had not been asleep and was at the door almost immediately. It was one of the boys from the village, an altar server no more than seven years old, fist already raised to knock again. Father, he said, come quickly. Manchu read his expression in an instant. What's happened? He asked, even though he was certain he knew the answer. Still, what's happened was a kinder question than who died. The army, they surrounded us. Manchu did not ask further questions. He followed the boy outside into the square. The soldiers were roaring into town now, making no attempt at stealth. Manchu couldn't fathom how he hadn't heard them coming. There was too much noise to pick out what individual men were saying, but their intent was clear. Every resident, about 60 men, women, and children, had been rousted from their beds and corralled into the main square. The man with captain's braid on his shoulders paced back and forth. Behind him, a dozen men stood, their rifles still slung over their shoulders. For the moment. Manchu didn't fool himself that they were going to stay that way. Father, a low voice called. Manchu turned and his heart sank even further. Apparently the rebels hadn't all made it back to their hidden camps in the mountains in time. And now here they were, guns at the ready, hiding in the shadows by the church. Manchu paused and Sal watched him with open concern. The army just showed up to kill everyone, just like that? He shook his head. There was an excuse, uh, there always was. Harboring rebels who had refused to disarm. But effectively, yes, they showed up to kill everyone. Why? To prove that they still could. And then the rebels found out and surrounded the army? Manchu shrugged. There weren't enough of them for that, but it was enough for an effective ambush. With the element of surprise, they probably could have killed most of the soldiers. And then the government would have sent more to retaliate. Concentric circles of death all the way down. 
Sal wasn't sure what to say. I'm sorry seemed inadequate, but it was all she had. For years, I wondered if it was because of me. I had distinguished myself within the church during the Civil War. Conflict is fertile ground for demons, and I had made it clear that I would protect both sides from their influence, banishing them back where they came from as soon as they dared show themselves in my presence. I wondered if maybe, if someone high enough in the chain of command decided to take exception to that policy of neutrality. They might have made an example of my village in order to send a message. The rebels couldn't have been too happy that you were helping the army. Not really, but they were more at risk from the demons than the government forces were. Doesn't matter anyway. Eventually, I realized that trying to blame myself was just a form of self-aggrandizement. There was no way I made enough of a difference for either side to take me down so spectacularly. You must have saved lives. From demons, yes. But I couldn't stop people from killing each other. And that's what it looked like was going to happen again. They sat together in silence until Sal asked, what happened instead? Manchu sighed. I stopped the massacre. Father Manchu steeled himself for the strong possibility of death. He wasn't naive enough to believe that his collar would somehow protect him when the bullets started flying. For every man holding a gun who might hesitate to shoot a priest, there was another who would want to be sure that no official representative of the church survived to tell the world what had happened in a small mountain village. His only hope was to somehow convince the two armed groups bent on killing each other not to kill a cluster of innocent civilians in the process. And then a hand caught his sleeve. The boy was still standing beside him. Only now his eyes were featureless white. His skin glowed with an unearthly radiance, and his hair fluttered by his face, fanned by a breeze, even though the air was perfectly still. He was the most beautiful thing Menchu had ever seen. What are you? Menchu asked. If you try to talk to them, they'll kill you. Maybe not, he said, then repeated. What are you? You know what I am. He did. At least he hoped that he did. Manchu fell back a step, still cautious, but for the first time that night, hopeful. Can you stop this? The child nodded. Then why don't you? You have to ask. A part of Manchu's mind, some deep instinct, told him to say no. It warned that there was a trap before him, and the only way to avoid it was to walk away. But hope was too strong. The hope that no one, including him, would have to die that night. Manchu asked. God help him, he asked. And? Manchu looked up from his clasped hands and realized he had been staring silently at them for some minutes. I asked the uh, thing to protect the villagers from the army and from the rebels. And? It did. It was as though a madness swept through both armed groups simultaneously. Suddenly, the army seemed to be able to see the rebels wherever they were hiding and fired unerringly into the alleyways. The rebels fired back. The sound of gunfire and screams filled the air. Instinctively, Manchu threw himself over the child thing, shielding its tiny body with his own, covering his head and trying not to be noticed or caught in the crossfire. Only when the square once again fell silent did he finally dare to rise. All around, the buildings were studded with bullet holes, and under the straining glow of the streetlights, the cobblestones ran slick with blood. 
But in the center of it all, not a single villager had been touched. In shock, Manchu looked down at the child. Its unearthly appearance was unchanged, but then it smiled, and Manchu's blood ran cold. It was not the smile of the boy he knew or of any child on earth. It was wrong. Why are you smiling? Manchu asked. Was this how God wrought his miracles? The child's smile grew. Because what comes next is fun. Manchu stood there for the rest of the night. He found himself unable to move, speak, or intervene in any way as the demon who had possessed the boy tortured and killed every man, woman, and child in the village, there in the square in front of the church. At dawn, it turned to Manchu and slit its host's throat. Its last words were, let this be a lesson to you, father. Sal flinched as Manchu gripped both of her hands in his. I couldn't protect them, but I will protect you. I won't let you be brought down by the temptation of your hopes like I was. But what about the rest of our people? How do we protect them? Manchu didn't have an answer. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Five. On the floor of the archives, Grace shuddered and convulsed. Asante held the other woman's head, making sure she didn't choke on the bile she occasionally dredged up from her empty stomach. Liam was doing the best of the three of them, and even he had emptied his stomach hours ago. Worse, the tone had grown so loud that it was impossible to hear each other, even if they shouted at the top of their lungs. 
Liam left his computer where he had been trying and failing to find a way to block whatever was causing the effect and carried a pad of paper over to Asante. No good, he wrote. Asante sagged. He flipped the page. Your turn, I'll sit with her. Asante yielded her place on the floor beside Grace to Liam and stumbled off, rubbing her forehead with one hand. Liam hoped that the stacks would have more answers than his electronic resources. Given how his search had gone, that was a low bar. He really should find his tablet. That way he could work while he watched Grace. Why hadn't he thought to do that earlier? Noise, lack of sleep, lack of food. It was making him stupid. Can't afford that. Have to stay sharp. With a mental wrench, Liam pulled himself out of his downward spiral. No time for self-flagellation. He could get his tablet in a minute. Just gonna rest here for a bit first. Grace's head was pillowed against his thigh. The fact that she would never have allowed such intimacy had she possessed even a shred of consciousness somehow made the whole situation even worse. She had always guarded her privacy, and Liam had respected that. Seeing her now, he wondered if he should have asked more questions. Then maybe he wouldn't feel so helpless. Just a minute more. Then he would get the tablet and come right back. Just one more minute. As soon as his head stopped spinning. With the relentless noise and the pain it caused, Liam wouldn't have thought sleep was possible, but he must have lost consciousness, because suddenly Asante was shaking him awake. The wine was gone, the wind was back. Grace was still unconscious. But Asante positively glowed with a smile that lit her entire face. What happened? When I found you passed out, I killed the magnetic field, hoping that it might stop the tone, even if the wind came back. Congratulations, you're two for two. That's not the best part. A flying book knocked Liam in the back of his head and sent his chin driving down into his chest. Are you sure about that? Because this is just brilliant. Liam. Asante's eyes danced with triumph. Look around you. The wind isn't just picking up books at random. Blinking past the new pain in the back of his head, Liam tried to concentrate on the spinning storm around him. Asante picked up a book that had fallen to the floor and another from a shelf. This is a 17th century grimoire, she said, gesturing to the book she'd lifted from the floor. Only copy known to exist. This, she gestured to the one she'd taken from its place on the shelf. Is a first edition Francis Bacon, rare and not unique. Then she took both books and flung them into the air. Liam started. While he had been passed out, Asante had clearly gone insane. Did you just watch? Both books tumbled, pages fluttering until they finally landed, open on their backs. What am I watching? The pages. Liam blinked, still not seeing it. The bacon lay there, unmoving. The pages of the grimoire continued to flip in the wind. These books are the same size, with similar binding and weight paper. The wind is everywhere. Why aren't the pages of the bacon still moving? And now that she had said it, Liam saw it. The wind only affects books that are unique to the archives. Asante nodded. Yes, now if we can just figure out what that means. But Liam already knew. What it means? he said, speaking carefully but with growing certainty, is we're being hacked. Finally, something he could work with. At sunset on the third night of the market, Sal arrived alone at Gutenberg Castle, where she was greeted by the disapproving frown of the maitress. Where is the priest? 
she asked. I hope he hasn't decided to depart prematurely. Sal shook her head, fighting the feeling that she ought to bow or curtsy or something else that would probably just end up looking stupid. He had an errand to run in town and was unavoidably detained. I'm expecting him soon. The maitress gave Sal a penetrating look that went a step beyond a standard disapproving superior glare and straight to look right into your head territory. Sal fought to keep her expression bland and concentrated on repeating an internal mantra of, I'm not lying to you, I'm not lying to you, I'm not. Almost as though she really could read Sal's thoughts, the maitress's lips quirked upward. Very well, bookburner. I hope you find what you're looking for. Sal nodded to the matress and proceeded to beat a retreat across the courtyard as quickly as she could without looking like she was fleeing for her life. She wasn't sure she managed it, but she hadn't lied. When she was running an errand in town, she was expecting him soon. She just had something to do before he got back. The first night of the market was for posturing, the second was for negotiations, the third was for deals. Over Sal's head, but low enough that it couldn't be seen outside the castle walls, a firework in the shape of a red dragon exploded silently. Sal didn't give it a second glance. She had an appointment with the index. Opie grinned as she approached, noting that she was alone. Baby book burner breaking the rules. Are you gonna have to go to confession later? Not a Catholic, let's get on with this. Opie opened the door and ushered her through with a mock bow. Sal stepped past him into the room full of fantastical computers, heartened to see that her suspicions were correct. Bowing when you didn't know what you were doing did look stupid. He seemed amused at her impatience as she waited for him to follow her inside. You're awfully eager to give up a piece of your mind. Sal held his gaze, waiting for him to blink first. I've seen some things since I took this job that I wouldn't mind forgetting. Opie made a small negating gesture. The index takes what the index wants, so we can't control. Cut the crap. Opie's jaw snapped shut with an audible click. You were trying to stare through me from the first night of the market. I think you found out that Mr. Norris had a grudge against the society and offered to let him use the index to find a weak spot in the archives. Then when everyone arrives at the market and he attacks us, oh look, you just happened to have the solution to our little problem for the low, low price of a peek inside my head. Opie scoffed. Which makes perfect sense if everything we do somehow revolves around you. Sal shrugged. Maybe you get the benefit of a happy coincidence then. Bottom line, there's something in my head that you want. And you're not going to trust a random chance that this index of yours is going to pull what you're interested in. And what would you know that would be that valuable to us? I know what happened to my brother. In the silence that followed, Sal could hear the faint hum of computers the ripple of the seahorse's aquarium, and the rustle of night moths pollinating the flowers blooming on the moss computer's keyboard. You have information I want. I have information you want. Let's make a trade. Opie blinked. Oh, very, uh, pragmatic. I'm a practical person. Hell, we can dispense with this whole index bullshit for all I care. You tell me, I tell you, we both go our separate ways. The obnoxious smile was back. <laughs> no deal. How would we know you aren't lying? How do I know your index knows anything useful? Given that I'm not the one with the friends under threat of death, I guess that's a risk you'll have to take. Sal made a show of scowling. Fine, let's do this. Temper, temper, baby book burner. Friends dying, I didn't sleep well last night, PMS, take your pick. 
Plus, I think we both want this business concluded before Father Manchu gets back from his errand in Baltzers. That at least got Opie moving. He walked over to a large black packing case, opened it, and removed a wooden box just large enough to hold a pair of shoes. He closed the case immediately after removing the box, and Sal caught a glimpse of flames, skittering legs, and a brief moaning sound. Oh yeah, this is a great idea. The box remained connected to the packing case by glowing filaments wrapped in sinew-like tendrils that gave off a faint smell of burning meat. Remembering Scotland, Sal's stomach gave a lurch and she swallowed bile. That's the index? Opie nodded. The box is the interface, the case is the processor, the server is elsewhere. He clearly wanted her to ask where elsewhere might be, and so Sal declined to do so. It would only bring back the insufferable smirk. Also, she didn't really care. Her job was finding the weird stuff. How it worked was Liam and Asante's department. Assuming they all lived that long. What do I do? Opie handed Sal a slip of paper and pointed to a small table in the corner where a stack of paper, quill, and inkwell sat waiting. Write your question on the paper, hold the paper in your fist, and put your hand in the box. He paused, then added, smirk back in place. Don't be afraid. Fear is the mind killer. Sal raised an eyebrow. Okay. Opie made a disgusted sound and muttered something under his breath before gesturing to the table. Just write it down. Sal hesitated. Does the index read intent? Huh? How literal-minded is it? Can the index figure out what I mean, or do I need to be careful not to make one of my wishes genie make me a sandwich? Opie shrugged. The more specific your question the more specific the answer. Well, that was helpful. With a sigh, Sal picked up the paper and quill. This might take a minute. The smirk was back. No hurry, no hurry at all. 10 minutes and a lot of blotting later, Sal clutched a folded piece of paper tightly in her clenched fist. Opie opened the box with a brass key that hung around his neck and held it out for her. Ready when you are. Sal hesitated. The wood looked old, but she wasn't enough of an expert to tell whether it meant that the box itself was ancient or that it had been made from repurposed boards. Repurposed from what? Karen's rowboat? The Ark of the Covenant? Lumber playing from a section of the True Cross? Perry had been into woodworking for a while in Boy Scouts. Maybe he would have been able to tell by looking at the joinery. Yes, think about Perry. And hope you're still able to think about him after this is over. Opie, for all his professed patience as she'd crafted her question, made a small get-on-with-it gesture. There was a notch cut into one of the short sides of the box for her wrist. Once Sal put her hand in and Opie locked the lid, she'd be stuck until he decided to let her out. Or until she wrenched the box from him, ripped out the connection that tied it to the packing case, and went running through the black market with a magical wooden box permanently grafted to her arm. Sal eyed Opie, sizing him up. She could take him, even one-handed. Sal placed her hand in the box. Opie slammed the lid shut. Sal's hand felt cold, then hot, then like it was being stuck with a hundred needles. She flinched. Opie locked one hand around her wrist. His grip was surprisingly strong. Don't move. The pain faded, leaving Sal's skin cool, but not as intensely cold as before. She felt a soft brush of fur across her knuckles. 
Then something wet and sticky slid across the base of her palm. Not a tongue. It can't possibly be a tongue. Was not a tongue any better? No, definitely not. Sal shuddered, and suddenly the bones of her hand were on fire. She tried to open her hand, but her muscles weren't listening to her commands, nerves too busy transmitting a constant stream of pain, 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 to carry any other instructions. Sal gritted her teeth, closed her eyes, and concentrated. Sal was back in her past, in a self-storage facility in New Jersey. Perry, or Perry plus a demon, floated in midair, surrounded by a pile of books, pages flipping madly. But it wasn't the same, because the index was there too. Breathing down the back of her neck, breath hot and moist, like a wolf ready to snap its jaws through her spine. And when it did, it would take this moment from her forever. This was what the index wanted, and it was hungry. Trapped in her own memory, Sal reached for the book of the hand. Bare fingers inches from the cover, a hair's breadth away. She could feel the jaws closing, teeth piercing the skin of her neck, and with every force of her will that remained, Sal wrenched her mind to another memory, one much more recent. She was in her room at the B&B with Manchu, on the phone with Liam. They're hacking the archive, he said. Not the computers, the books. I'm sending a file to your phone, you need to memorize it. As the wolf's teeth sank into her neck, Sal called up the file to her mind. It was a complex mathematical function represented as a single abstract image. Sal hadn't slept at all, committing every twist and overlap to memory. It was amazing what she could do if the incentive for success was strong enough. According to Liam, the index shouldn't read the image as a threat, because to Sal, it was only an image. She didn't understand the math behind it, or the program behind the math. She was just carrying the candy coating, to trick the index into swallowing the whole thing down. Because even if Sal didn't understand the meaning, it was there, hidden and coated in every twist and turn and recursive loop, a tiny seed planted in fertile ground. Sal could hear shouting. Opie and others. She felt a pain like someone tearing the flesh from her hand, and then a sharper one as something hit her in the head. She inhaled to shout and choked on a lungful of smoke. Sal coughed for moments, hours, years, until she managed to open her eyes. Apparently, the thing that had hit her head was the floor, and she took in the room from her new low and cockeyed angle. Smoke poured from the crate that housed the index. Her phone, tucked in her pocket, buzzed frantically. Sal crawled to a corner, completely ignored by the frantic techno-cultists who had flooded into the room since she'd closed her eyes. Sal finally got her hands, hey, she had both hands again, around her buzzing phone. It worked? Liam's voice sounded more tired than she had ever heard it, but also relieved. It worked. Good. Sal hung up. The guardians were pouring in along with the maitress. And there was Mr. Norse, followed by Father Manchu whose errand in town had been to keep the billionaire distracted until it was too late for him to stop Sal's plan. A fact that Mr. Norris had realized too late. Sal decided that Menchu could handle him, and the maitress, and the guardians. He was good with people. It was his job. The market arcanum concluded without further incident. When dawn broke over the Alps, Sal watched the men in wolf cloaks walk out of the castle and right back into the woods. 
The women in evening gowns pulled on cloaks and veils to hide their tattoos before alighting into their limousines. The techno-cultists had packed their computers into a white panel van and left as soon as it became clear that the maitress did not view the destruction of the index as sufficient cause to evict Menchu and Sal from the market. Mr. Norris departed rather more gracefully, although his last words were not exactly a comfort. Until next time, book burners. A shadow fell across Sal's path as she and Menchu carried their bags to the rental car, and Sal looked up to see the maitress herself waiting for them. Even in daylight and without her flanking guardians, she radiated authority. It's been quite an eventful few days for you. Her eyes flicked to Sal. I hope you're able to get your house back in order after this unfortunate um, disruption. The repairs to the archives are already underway, said Menchu. The matress smiled. That, too. And without waiting for a reply, she turned and walked away back up the road to the castle. Sal and Menchu stood together in silence, watching her go, until her steps carried her around a bend and out of sight. Menchu broke their tableau first, heaving his case into the trunk of the car. Come on, let's go home. Sal followed suit and slid into the front passenger seat beside him. For the hundredth time, she slid her hand into her pocket, fingers seeking the reassurance of the folded piece of paper she had put there the only physical evidence that remained of her encounter with the technocultists. It was the paper where she had written her question for the index. What is Mr. Norse looking for? It now bore only two words, Codex Umbra. Hours later, when Salem and Chu reached Rome, the archives still looked like a bomb had hit them. A non-fiery, book-oriented bomb, sure, but a bomb nonetheless. Asante took a break from picking up the pieces of her library to hug them both. Sal felt a surge of relief as her arms went around the archivist. Sometimes you just had to touch someone to prove to yourself that they were still alive. Liam is glued to his computer, Asante told Sal when she asked about the others. Grace went home to sleep. It had been a long three days for everyone, Sal supposed. Between being up all night for the market, plus staying up for most of the days between, Sal felt like she hadn't slept in a week. She'd dozed for a few hours on the train, but her sleep had been filled with dreams of wandering the corridors between compartments looking for something. She certainly didn't feel rested. Then again, she never had slept well away from her own bed. Bed. Liam. Sal excused herself and went in search of their beleaguered tech expert. Time to prove to herself that he was still alive, too. She found him, as promised, hunched over his laptop and lingered in the doorway, waiting for him to notice her. When he didn't, she cleared her throat. Liam looked up. You saved the day, said Sal. Nice work. Liam shrugged off the compliment. Not quick enough. Who knows what those techno bastards found while they were flipping through the archives, or what they left behind. Did you find any reference to the Codex Umbra? Not even a description of what it might be which is what worries me. Sal sighed. Take the win, then. We've got a hell of a mess to clean up, but at least we're all okay, right? She slid up behind him, letting her thumbs dig into the tense muscles of his shoulders. Thanks to you. He shrugged her off. Unless Mr. Norris managed to find and erase the information he was looking for. With all of the books the hack disturbed, it could take us centuries to find out what damage he did. Liam turned back to his computer. 
Sal blocked him by plopping down in his lap. If it will take centuries anyway, it can wait until morning. So I'm too tired, he began, and so am I. But I've spent the last three days afraid you were gonna die, and I don't wanna be alone tonight. Besides, you look like hell. You're gonna have to sleep sometime. It might as well be with me. Liam gently put his hands on her waist and lifted her to her feet. Okay, he said, but go ahead, I'll let myself in later. Sal wanted to protest, but she was too tired. Fine, whatever you want. That night, Sal dreamed of wandering the streets of Rome, looking for that same thing she could not name. When she finally woke, hours passed on. The other side of the bed was undisturbed. Coda. Manchu stayed in the archives late into the night. The niche he had previously designated as his office had been completely destroyed by Mr. Norse's hacking. His poor, long-suffering chair had lost a leg at some point, snapped off just below the seat. Manchu located the missing piece and was contemplating repairs when he felt Asante staring at him. Did you tell her? Yes. And? Now she knows. But I don't know that it's made her a more cautious swimmer. Asante made a noncommittal hmm noise. Manchu quirked an eyebrow at her. What? Did you ever consider that you learned the wrong lesson from your experience with the angel in Guatemala? They tortured and murdered an entire village. It wasn't an angel. Asante shrugged. You've read the Bible. God kills people all the time. Violence, disease, apocalyptic flood. Even Jesus had a temper. Manchu felt his own temper rising and made an effort to keep it in check. Asante continued. You'd dealt with demons before. If you'd realized what the boy was immediately and banished him or refused to make a deal, would the massacre still have happened? If you're trying to say that what I did didn't make a difference, I assure you, I'm saying that you knew demons were evil before that night. If that was the lesson you were supposed to learn, someone was being very redundant with your education. Manchu let out a long breath. He was too tired to have this discussion now. Possibly ever. What's your point, Santi? Demon, angel, or something else, from what you've told me? Making a deal with that thing was the only possible way you could have prevented a massacre that night. Manchu gritted his teeth. But I did, and it didn't. But what if that was the lesson? Asante gripped his sleeve, begging him with her eyes to listen and understand. Next time, make a better deal. Manchu turned away. Asante let go of his arm, and he heard her footsteps fading away, quickly muffled by the destruction around them. Her words lingered long after she had disappeared among the stacks. Next time. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Oh, welcome, traveler. Sorry I didn't hear you come in. Tend to get a bit lost in my own thoughts back there. Come, sit and have a drink with me. It's been an age since I've had a guest at my inn, and you look like you could do with getting off your feet for a spell. It's my job to teach those who come through everything they need to know about the Echo Wood. So if you'll permit me, I have a proposition for you. 
I will tell you everything I know of the Echo Wood. I will tell you of witches and ghosts and sea beasts. I will tell you of dragons and dwarves and the glittering stars above. Do we have a deal? Tales of the Echo Wood, a fantasy anthology from the creators of the Sheridan Tapes. Listen now on all podcasting platforms or at echowoodpod.com. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith and additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>